What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. I'm ready. Adjustment here. Notice yep. all my show notes, Ken? You ain't got none. I came so prepared this morning. I brought you some notes. <laughs> and I know the world must be ending. <laughs> <laughs> I came with nothing and you have papers. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot on there, too. And, well, you know, it was kind of funny. Uh, you know, I had, I didn't mention it last time, but I had had a leg wound and uh, it wouldn't heal. It wouldn't heal. And my wife said, oh, well, we're going to put this, uh, this, uh, clear plastic stuff that forms a skin over it and mm-hmm. you know, we did that for two or three weeks and it wouldn't do it didn't ever get any better in fact it got worse i thought so i said what well, i'm gonna go see my doctor and he's put me on antibiotic and also he says well ken we're gonna i'm gonna put you on medical honey i'm sitting there medical honey <laughs> What the hell? He says, yeah, I'm going to put you on medical, honey. You, you're going to uh, change the, the bandages twice a day and put this medical honey on there. I'm sitting there, okay, that'll work. Sounds good. And uh, I was thought he was just messing with it, with me because he knows that we have bees. And uh, so uh, I go to the pharmacist and where he called it in. And I went over and it was... $10 for this little bitty tube. I'm sitting there. Hell, I got honey. It's free. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not the same. It's not sterile. So I thought all honey was sterile. Well, you know, anything that the FDA is going to regulate and put out there, they, they want it pasteurized and they want it homogenized and they want to do everything they can mm-hmm. to make sure they've killed off any potential pathogens in there. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some things they don't necessarily affect humans, but there are some things in honey that are a fungus or spore derived. Okay. And those spores, even with pasteurization, doesn't kill them, doesn't get rid of them. So I, I don't know, you know, the definition of what a sterilized honey would be. I don't know if they heat it up and pass it through a microfine filter. If mm. they do, that's what a lot of the Ex, well, not exported, but the imported honey that's mm-hmm. like potentially adulterated or if they don't want you to know where it came from. Right. They heat it up, which kills off all the good beneficial things in it mm-hmm. anyway. And then they pass it through these microfine filters that it has to be super hot and a lot of pressure to go through. And it strips it of all the pollen that's in it. And then you can't trace it because without the pollen kernels in there, you can't identify what the plant and floral life was like and where it might have came from, what region and whatnot. So they can kind of do that to help sneak things in sometimes so that may have been you know like part of the process of sterilization i don't actually know but if they did something like that and they did kill off any of mm-hmm. the the naturally occurring good or bad things in there uh I, I don't know what that would do to like all of the the minerals and the vitamins and all that stuff in it they might still be present um and then if it's still dehydrated down then it's still hydroscopic so even that will kill bacteria molecules because mm-hmm. it, it eviscerates them it tries to pull the moisture out of them I know that it, it it's it's the what I've got is starting to crystallize. One tube I hadn't opened both tubes, but one of them is starting to crystallize. It still comes out of the tube, but you can see the crystals in there. A little chunky. Yeah, and uh, it is honey. I had to taste it. <laughs> it's honey. It's just plain old honey. I'm sitting there. 
Damn. This is $10 for like an ounce and a little bit. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, wow. And uh, But anyway, it works. But now, folks, it burns. <laughs> I mean, it burns bad if, uh, where it's on broken skin, where he went in there. Well, the first time he did it, he put just some kind of antiseptic cream on there, which I thought, oh, that's the Medi Honey. It don't, it don't hurt. Mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> that was hurts. just probably like a new That was just some kind of antiseptic yeah. cream. But, uh, and then. He said, he told me, you go to the, get your Medi honey and medical honey and, and, uh, you start changing it. Now, let me tell you, I started that Tuesday, uh, probably now we had been doing this for a month. I'm going to say by tomorrow, Sunday, by Monday, I'm going to be healed up. Uh, it had some little, little, uh, wounds in there and they have healed. Uh, the big one, I sent you a picture of it. It was big. Yeah, that's pretty gnarly. I mean, it was nasty looking. And uh, it's uh, it's pretty much almost healed. And I'm sitting there, wow. I mean, this stuff. You know, Sam Kaufman is a, what is he? He's like a medicine man. <laughs> but Yeah. Uh, he, I don't know how to necessarily describe that either. Kind of a naturalist when it comes right. to... Uh, finding beneficial plants, He's plants big that have plants. have any type of nutritional or medicational type application to them in the wild. So walking through the field and pointing out something and saying, "Oh, this can help with that," or "That can treat this," and yeah, he's big on that kind of stuff. And then we got to talking to him, or I did, about bees, and he says, "Well, propolis is a great antibacterial." Mm-hmm. And he says, well, how we mix it is we take and mix it with, he uses beeswax and olive oil and propolis. And he says, now you can use that on your, any kind of wound. And uh, he says, it, it, it's very great. He says, it's a, a great antibacterial and it heals quick. And I'm sitting there, wow. Yeah, propolis is a really interesting concept. The... The bees go out and they actually forage on saps and resins extruded or um, excreted. Out of the trees. I cannot speak this morning. Out of trees. And so what they do is they go through and they actually select for some of the most toxic substances that are there that if they would have actually like ingested it whole, Mm -hmm. it would actually hurt them. And they take these substances and they mix them together and they create a new concoction that is called propolis. And they use that as both part of their immune system. They coat the entire inside mm-hmm. of their hive with it. It actually kills pathogens and it's like antimicrobial, antibacterial. Um, but it also provides them with like a sealant and a glue because it's super, mm-hmm. super sticky. It's like tar. And they'll go through and they'll coat the entire inside of their hive. So in the summer when it's really hot and you've got a colony that's propolized things, when you go through and you try to pull your frames or pull your bars apart, there'll be this very sticky tar-like substance between them. But as it gets cooler, that's what actually makes the crack or the pop when you try to separate your boxes and you put your hive tool Mm -hmm. in there and you wedge it across. Or when you try to pop up a frame or a bar and it goes snap. Mm -hmm. That's actually the propolis. When it's in a cooler state, it's very brittle. Wow. And to harvest it... You can go through some colonies like uh, we've we've done disservice to the bees in some areas because we 
they go through and they try to breed for things that they find is a nuisance. And, and a lot of propolis is a nuisance to the beekeeper because everything's always stuck together. It's hard to get it apart. Mm -hmm. It's a mess. It's sticky. And if you get it on you, it doesn't come off kind of thing. So, you know, they start breeding for these traits where they don't do that as much, but the bees need that because it is actually healthy. Right. There are some studies that show that the the propolis, if you have more propolis inside the colony, mm -hmm. it actually helps the queen's pheromones travel throughout the colony better and helps be more dispersed through there, which actually helps reduce swarming tendencies and other issues with the, the queen pheromone spreading. So there's a lot of both disease prevention and hive maintenance and upkeep and then pheromone production, all these things go into the propolis. But for us to, to harvest it, you scrape off when it's in a nice hot state, you mm -hmm. can scrape off chunks of it, set it aside into a container, and then once you get a good amount of it in there, you put that container in the freezer and you keep it in the freezer to store it. Mm -hmm. That makes it extremely brittle, and then you can actually break it and crush it while it's cold and get it down into a finer substance that can be mixed into tinctures or mixed into, like you were saying, balms and salves and things like that that'll then add in those properties that you want that uh, that carry along with it. There's a lot of amazing things that can come out of a beehive. No, I, yeah, a lot. Uh Oh, speaking of amazing things that come out of beehives, honey, honey, <laughs> we on the you know the two top bars I have, one of them has eleven or twelve front, uh, top bars with the with honey, the other one is up to fourteen, I think. I think that's what we were counting, and well, two top bars. Had stuck to the hive to the side, and we scraped. You know, when we pulled those out, just little. It's only about half an inch. Yeah, little stuck, burr, little yeah, burr comb attachment. Burr. And so we pulled it out. Didn't break the comb or nothing. Didn't break the the big comb, and just pulled off. And Max says, John said to scrape that off, right? And I said, Yeah. He said scrape that off, and he on the side. So he got his his uh tool down there and scraped that off and just scraped it on the side of the of the hive and the bees come up and they started going to take that honey back in well nope they ain't either he grabbed his tool took both those little wads of comb went and took them to the truck set it down left it on his tool brought my tool back so he says <laughs> we, we can still work so uh, after we were finished working the bees we went over and tried it Oh, that's the prettiest, clearest honey, and and it has a citrus flavor to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's coming from the horse mint. Oh, it is good. Gosh, it's one of those one of those interesting things that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Like orange blossom honey uh -huh. does not necessarily taste like oranges, which is you know you would think your brain uh -huh. gets this preconceived notion. Well, orange mint, or sorry, horse mint, horse mint actually has. Uh, like a fruity or a citrusy mm -hmm. kind of taste. And mm -hmm. the, the way that it works is you get the smooth, you get the sweet, you get the floral, and then you get this like, there's a like a fruity aspect to right. it. And then all of a sudden at the end, there's this this high note, like this tang that kind of hits you at mm -hmm. the end in the back of your mouth. And you're like, oh. And that's, that is actually, that's the, what the horseman is adding to that. That's what it's mm. contributing to that flavor palette. It's good. I guarantee you it's good. And you already said I could probably take one, Maybe. You can, yeah, you can harvest one or two from that bigger colony that has the 14 plus in there. Yeah. Take the very last two combs that are fully capped with honey out of the very mm -hmm. back of it 
and we'll go through and harvest them out. We had uh, a couple of listeners online on social media that have requested that uh, they want to see a video of that. So we're going to make okay. sure uh, we'll all come out there with you guys, and that way I can I'll have it in the format okay. that that uh, my phone likes because. The last one Max sent to me, the conversion from iPhone to Android. Yep. Yeah, it was that they don't play well together. No, no. <laughs> but uh, we'll go through and we'll get a video of that of and show pulling out the comb. We'll show getting the bees off of it. We'll show actually cutting the comb. And then we'll show the process of how we go through and actually crush that to get the honey out. Or mm -hmm. how you can actually eat it if it is uh, raw honeycomb that doesn't, you know, it's pure white. Right. doesn't ever have brood in it or anything like that. No, this will be pure white. Yeah. It's, it's raw honeycomb. Uh, the... The top bars are just blowing the the two. You know, we put two top bars, and, two and then we put two Langstroths. The Langstroths are down. Let's see. We got seven. Maybe one had eight frames full out, and the other one had seven. And they were already, you could see where they were starting to stick another frame. Yeah. And that's... See, that's a good, that's why a lot of times people will say, you know, don't get just one hive, have two hives when you're first starting, because it gives you something to compare and contrast with. And so you've got two top bars that you can compare and contrast each other mm -hmm. with, but you've also got two Langstroths, but then you can compare and contrast the actual styles of the hives as well, back and forth. And right. And when you go through and you look at them, your Langstroths comparable to each other, they're doing about the same, and the top bars are mm -hmm. doing about the same comparable to those two. Mm -hmm. But it, it just gives you a better idea, too, of some colonies do really well, some colonies don't do really well, um, as far as, like, how quickly they build. Like, the colony is still healthy, it's still doing good, it's still got enough bees in there, it's just not, that colony doesn't build wax as fast, or it's just not in that growing phase. But next year, it could explode and, and just be huge, you know, so... Mm -hmm. It's a good way to go through and, and take a look at it and watch it and kind of see what's going on. So for you, um, last episode we talked about the summer dearth and a couple of other things that are going to be happening and coming up now mm -hmm. is wax production and comb growth and colony growth is going to slow down. So for us here in Central Texas, that first dearth, that summer dearth, that is also the end of our growing period. So they've done all this work, all this expansion, they've brought in all this honey and stored it in there. But now that's going to be basically it. So they're not going to grow new comb on their own accord unless, you know, you you artificially stimulate them with stuff. What's going to happen is they're going to start tapering off. And that that's a twofold process. One, it's hot. The flowers have stopped making a mm -hmm. lot of nectar. So the foragers are out there and they're looking and they're coming back and reporting, hey, the days are getting long. The days are getting hot and there's not as much food out there. We can't. We're having a harder time finding food. That then transcribes over to the nurse bees, and the nurse bees say, okay, well, if we're having a hard time bringing in food stores and we're going through this much right now as it is, we need to cut back on the new babies that are going to be born. So they actually start cutting back on how much they feed the queen, which then cuts back on how much the queen lays, and they'll start making it to where she doesn't lay as much. And that means your new bees mm -hmm. that come in that start emerging, they start tapering off. And as they taper off, you have no bees to draw wax because you need, when that bee emerges from the cell as an adult mm -hmm. bee, a week and a half later, they start generating their wax glands. Well, you need a good amount of those to really draw a lot of wax. And you also need influx of sugar. They need right. that, that diluted nectar is what they turn into the actual sugar. So mm -hmm. the, the higher water content with a lower sugar content, they turn that into the, the wax, sorry, um, turn it into the wax. So... 
if you don't have both of those things occurring at the same time, your wax production is going to stop. So that's why I made the comment about when I posted the stuff on social media um, showing your hive inspection, how the Langstroths, we probably weren't going to end up adding another box this year because they still, in some cases, have two to three right. frames that they, right. they need to draw out. We may be doing quite a bit of encouragement just to get them to finish that up and then go through and backfill that in and make sure that they do good in that spot. Now, if we do artificially stimulate and feed, which we can totally do for the next two or three months and see what they do, um, if we go through and we keep feeding a very diluted sugar water in there mm -hmm. and put another box on once they get to that 90% full, if they keep drawing out wax and keep raising babies and, and ignore the fact that there's not natural nectar out there for them, then, you know, more power to them. Let's keep them growing because the bigger they are going into winter, the better. Right. But that's another thing, though that I've already had a couple of people reach out to me in a panic kind of state because they've looked in some of their colonies and they're afraid they've lost their queen. And that's going to be very, very prevalent for everybody once the summer dearth is very much in flux mm -hmm. because, or in, in, in the process of. Uh, the main part of that, the part of that is that the... The summer dearth, when it is at the peak and there is no food available, the queen may not lay at all. There may be no eggs in there. So if you're someone who has had a hard time spotting your queen and you've been looking for larvae or eggs, and now you can't see larvae or eggs, so then you panic and you're like, oh my god, I lost my queen, I'm queenless, what's happened, what's going on? Well, it's actually that the queen and the colony, they know we can't be raising babies right now because there's not enough food out there to support them, so therefore we've got to cut back. And then as the fall flow for us starts moving right. back in in September, they'll ramp back up and they'll start laying again and they'll start increasing. Now, if you do the artificial feeding, they may go through and they may actually keep raising brood, especially if you're also feeding like a pollen substitute because they need that protein source to raise the babies. Now, this year, mesquite trees are going crazy. Now, is that a big nectar producer it is a huge nectar producer but they may not partake of it until like if, if it keeps going so this week mm -hmm. we've got this uh nice long stretch of hot with no mm -hmm. rain that's what the mesquite tree wants mm -hmm. so the mesquite tree may kick into overdrive and everything else may actually stop and if that happens the bees will absolutely switch to the mesquite because it's going to be the most prevalent source of sugar out there for them of sweet and so they're going to go get it and they're going to bring it back in that'll actually help things out now what i have been told um and i i this one's a hard one to justify like there's no research in this area to truly stipulate what they prefer and when but i have been told by many older beekeepers that bees don't like mesquite it's almost like bees don't like alfalfa either but they will forage on alfalfa right. and the the whole point of the alfalfa if you've got mega crops of it and there's nothing else out there for them then they will go into it and they'll forage it but the reason they don't like it is it has a trigger mechanism in it and you've got this twofold flower almost kind of like how the horsemint has where we talked about mm -hmm. when they go in the, the top of the flower kind of paints the pollen on them mm -hmm. well the alfalfa has a trigger mechanism and when they get on that lower pedal and they put their head down in there to get the, the nectar it activates this trigger and the top pedal pops them on the head it literally slaps them on the head and that's what deposits the pollen yeah, i can on there. say they don't like yeah, that the, the bees don't really like that mechanism but if there's nothing else out there to eat 
they will go to it. And I've been told mesquite is the same way. If there's other abundant nectar sources, they will avoid the mesquite until there's nothing else out there. But the good thing for us is that when mesquite blooms, when it's favorable for mesquite, is usually times when it's not favorable for other things. So they do go to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we do get, um, you know, pure mesquite honey very easily, especially south in South Texas. You can get a lot of it because that's all that's out there. But even here, you know, I've said multiple times that we we had the honey tested last year and it was 60% mesquite. And I was expecting it to be 60%, you know, like horse mitten Indian blanket, but it was actually primarily mesquite that year. So it uh, it, it just kind of, it's an ebb and a flow. It kind of depends on what, what they need and what's going on and what's out there. Our honey should be mesquite. No, no, no. The spring honey is going to be horse blanket and horse mint. No. <laughs> <laughs> you just put them all together. Indian blanket and horse mint. We'll make no, a new one. There ones. we go. Yeah. So I, I've been up since one o'clock this morning. <laughs> I don't have that excuse, but I am still tired. I, I did not want to get up. Uh, yeah. And, and again, out there, you know, we we showed on Instagram um, at the Hive Jive. If you guys haven't went out there and looked at it recently, there are some photos of Ken's last inspection, and you can also see some of the photos of the forage mm-hmm. out there around his hives. And that is, it is gorgeous out there, but it started off seas of red, and then that faded into seas of yellow and purple. And the yellow were like these little black-eyed Susans, and then the purple is the horse mint that's out there. Right. And then you started getting the spotted horse mint, which really, you almost can't see the flowers on it because they're hidden mm-hmm. underneath these green and white leaves. But all of that stuff is out there in abundance, and then you've got all of the white bush, which they call bee brush. Um, it's a... a colloquial name for that and it's gonna bloom again here it quit blooming it's gonna bloom again here pretty quick because it rained again yeah every time it rains you get blooms on it that. blooms see and then those are great plants nectar producing plants mm-hmm. and stuff for the bees so you still have a lot of things out there but i would almost bet from looking at it that your primary source would be potentially the indian blanket and then you're gonna oh, have that yeah. horse mint come in afterwards uh however you never know because like say the thistle that was out there mm-hmm. maybe there was a field of that on the other side of one of those tree lines that we didn't see and they preferred it and so they got a lot of it and you'll go through and test it and be like now they were sitting right in the middle of all that indian blanket <laughs> and it's like the smallest quantity of anything in there you know like it's just kind of interesting we were talking about the taste of the horse mint mm-hmm. the taste of the indian blanket actually adds this buttery smooth really? texture and, and flavor like you get literally a mm-hmm. buttery kind of taste to it um, that's what the that's what Indian blanket lends to the flavor palettes of the honey. So what's the mesquite? The mesquite actually is a very subtle flavor, and the more concentration of it that's in there, if you get like pure mesquite honey, mesquite and wajillo both have this. A wajillo is a tree, by the way, that yeah. makes a, a tassel like the mesquite. Down South Texas. Yeah, it's a little fuzzy caterpillar-looking tassel, mm-hmm. just like the mesquite does on its bloom. But the uh, the wajillo and the the mesquite both do a smoky like and and it's a a very subtle you taste it it's super sweet very subtle in flavor but there's this hint of like could be smoke in the background and (laughs) and i do want to clarify like it is a hint of kind of use your imagination if you ever take a bite of honey and you're like oh my god that tastes like smoke like immediately that is from you that's because you smoked it way too much and the honey actually absorbed (laughs) the smoke from the smoker so if it tastes like campfire smoke, that is not what we're talking about. No. We're, we're talking about just a subtle hint of you can use your imagination and be like, yeah, I could I could kind of see where that would be a smoky something subtle there. There you go. I've actually had somebody bring me 
um, every now and then people bring me all kinds of, of random things and gifts and it's, it's awesome. I greatly appreciate it whenever somebody does that, but, uh, had one meeting, it was just this weird fluke. We went to one of the association meetings and there were three different individuals at that one meeting that all brought me honey from across the United States. They had all went on places, went to traveling for vacation and stuff and went to different places and they brought little sample jars of stuff back. One of them though, was a smoked I want to say it was like smoked cherry wood honey. And they literally, whoever created it, smoked. literally put the honey in a smoker and smoked it. I couldn't handle it. I, I Too have, much uh, smoke? Oh, it was all you taste. It was smoke. And oh, I was yeah, like, no, 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 not. Maybe if you were going to use it as an ingredient to like marinate something and then cook it. Sure, because it would lend that smoky sweet flavor to it. But the honey itself, I, I couldn't do it. It was too much for me. That's some of those things where you kind of ruin things for yourself. So the more hives you're into and the more you do in beekeeping and the more things you pick up on, mm -hmm. there's sometimes I'll go through and we'll extract honey. And I'm like, that honey came out of brood comb. And you let anybody else taste it. And they're like, oh, my God, this is wonderful. And I'm like, I don't like it. <laughs> it tastes like brood <laughs> or it tastes like it has a hint of what brood comb smells like. Right. And so there, there's all these different little aspects of things that you'll pick up on the smoke from the actual smoker, you know, things like that. And to the untrained palate of anybody who just likes honey, you know, they'll taste it and be like, oh, it's wonderful. I don't I don't get any of that. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like to me, it's tainted. <laughs> so on my two Langstroths. I'm going to probably start feeding here in about another week or two. As soon as the mesquite starts falling apart. Yeah. And hopefully they'll fill up the brood box. Mm -hmm. And then next spring, I'll put on a medium box. Correct. They will fill it. They should fill next spring. So they, they've, they've spent this entire season so far trying mm -hmm. to fill up that deep. Mm -hmm. Well, next year, the deep's already full. So they've already got all that space. They don't have to use those resources to do it. They can focus on the next box and still have plenty of space to raise a lot of brood. Mm -hmm. So they'll fill up that medium fairly quickly. We'll put that on, uh, depending on if, we're, if we've artificially stimulated mm -hmm. them and they're really going, we can put that on as early as March. And then in mid-April, we should be on, able to add on a second box. Really? And if we're doing really well, by mid-May, we should be able to add on a technically would be your fourth box so by say march we're gonna put the first medium on yeah and then we'll feed then them we'll stay in april them. we'll put a, the next a one third on. one on yeah so that mid-april box is gonna be the horse mint no horse mints later yeah, I guess it is, ain't it? Yeah, the horse yeah. mint comes in so you're it's in may you're gonna may. yeah you'll start off with your for us, you're going to start off having the Indian paintbrush. Mm -hmm. That'll be the first nectar source that really starts coming in there. And then you're going to start getting all of the wildflowers. Then the Indian blanket is going to be the mm -hmm. peak of it. Then the horse mint comes in mid-Indian blanket and then trails off after that. And that, those fields where we're at, wow. <laughs> the horse, the Indian all of it blankets. Yeah, the Indian blanket. I mean, it was it was, it was a lot of red out there. Yeah. And then the, the mixture of those giant, whatever that one thistle was, that instead of making the those fuzzy flower, makes the giant white flower. It was plum full of pollen. Yeah. 
you would think that that would be a great pollen source for the bees, but like I said, we didn't see any bees Never in there. Never saw no bees missing. Yeah. There were plenty of bugs Those in it. Those weird beetles. Yeah. Giant, creepy-looking beetles. Oh, Maxie found two uh, hive beetles in the... I know you yeah. told me that it was funny, and and you you guys had the typical reaction that a lot of people have, which is the, oh my God, there's hive beetles in my hive, mm-hmm. you know, um, but hive beetles are not they're they're they are literally classified as a nuisance pest, which means regardless what any beekeeper tells you, hive beetles cannot kill your colony. Mm-hmm. Wax moths cannot kill your colony. Mm-hmm. Now, if your colony, they are they're basically a warning system. If you see a hive beetle, that doesn't mean anything. They're here. They're going to be there. That's just how it is. Now, what happens is they get in the colony, and the bees, when the colony is strong, they actually keep them separated. They'll keep them towards the back of the hive, away from the food or away from the brood. They'll Mm -hmm. keep them on empty comb. And a lot of times, they'll actually wax and propolize them into corners and put them in little gels. And the beetles are trapped there until the beekeeper comes and opens things up. So on a Langstroth, a lot of times, you'll find them up in the inner cover because the bees have chased them all up there and they keep them up there. So you'll open up the lid and there'll be all these beetles on top of the inner cover and you could squish them if you want to, it's fine, but they're not down in the middle of everything. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll find them on, like I said, those back combs, Mm -hmm. but that's it. Now, the beetles are constantly trying to sneak around and lay eggs. Right. But the, the bees are constantly going through and cleaning, and they'll clean off those eggs. They'll find any little larva that hatch. They grab them, and they carry them out. If your colony, if something happens to it, and it gets sick or it gets weak, it could be mass die off from getting sprayed or getting hit by a car. It could be just some sort of disease got into the colony, you know, anything. The queen got killed. Whatever happens that makes the colony start shrinking then they can no longer properly guard the space. Mm-hmm. So the hive beetles will start, their larva will start getting a foothold and taking over. That is a sign that something else is wrong with your colony. And it's not the hive beetles' fault. They are a symptom of a greater problem. Once the hive beetles get a good foothold and they, they really start fouling things up, they've got this natural yeast on them that creates this deathly, gross, decaying flesh smell as they go through and foul everything mm-hmm. up. The bees, at some point could say screw it like it's nasty in here we can't we don't have enough of us to clean them up it's ruined we're better off just leaving and starting over and they may abscond which means your colony did not die they actually left but there was still something else wrong with the colony that allowed the high beetles to really get a foothold once they leave the high beetles eat all the rest of the food sources that they can and then the wax moths move in and the wax moths eat all of the wax and everything else is left so You'll end up with a, a the untrained beekeeper, the one that wants to go out there once every month or two and look at stuff. Say they go out and it is coming up on the summer dearth and there are no eggs in your colony and you accidentally squish your queen, but you don't know you did. You were just putting things back in hastily. She was on the side of the frame. You squished her against the box and then mm-hmm. rolled her. She's done. The bees are screwed. They're panicking. They're looking. There's no young larva. There's no eggs. There's nothing they can do. So that colony then goes through this spiral. About three weeks later, you've got laying workers. Then all these drones are hatching out. They eat everybody else out of house and home. And the hive beetles take over and the wax moths take over. So you come back a month and a half later. You open up your colony. And all you have are spider webs and worm poop. And you say, I lost my hive to wax moths. No, you didn't. You lost your hive to yourself. Mm-hmm. You did it. They are just nature's cleanup crew after the colony's gone. Now, you were just talking about if the queen dies. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a, a, a situation like oh, that yeah, the supposedly news. over in uh, Cedar Park where 
somebody supposedly killed the queen. So they said, yeah. Yeah. The the um the so the the actual the truth of the matter that we can say definitively happened was that a colony of bees that were being kept in a proper hive mm-hmm. in somebody's backyard got really pissed off. Yep. And they may have had some more aggressive genetics to them. If you make a bee colony mad, um, they will sting anything mm-hmm. easily within 250 foot of the hive. Mm-hmm. If you make an Africanized colony mad, they'll sting anything within 250 yards of the hive, mm-hmm. which means your neighbors across the street, mm-hmm. not just in your backyard or up against your backyard. And in this situation, the colony got extremely pissed and they took off and they actually killed the neighbor's dog. Two dogs. Two dogs. Mm-hmm. And so big the black ones. The whole neighborhood, and again, yeah, big black, black hairy. Black. Monster, exactly. They went after the black furry thing first. Mm -hmm. And so they they go over, they kill the neighbor's dogs, and this whole thing happens, and the whole neighborhood is in a panic. Everybody's in an uproar, and it was a managed beehive. Somehow, though, what came out of that was, oh, well, the homeowners had to move, and they they took took the the queen queen with them. I thought that, too. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, well, that's BS. Yeah. Like, any, even... Even the most uneducated beekeeper <laughs> knows that you cannot just take a queen and make a colony go, right? Yeah. So whatever that was, whatever was truly trying to go on, they may have been attempting to requeen the colony because the colony was aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many things happened in there that were all wrong. Like there were so many mistakes on the beekeeper's part. Even if like if you've got a really aggressive colony and you do know you need to requeen it, the first thing you should do is make sure to be aware of your surroundings. You don't want to do that in the middle of the day when your neighbors are going to be Mm -hmm. out playing in their yard, mowing their yard, their dogs are outside. If you absolutely have to, wait till evening because if it's right at sunset or it's getting close to sunset, if you make them mad, they're going to go back to the hive sooner because the sun is setting. Right. Which means then they've got all night to calm down and get over it right. before your neighbors come back outside and start doing then stuff. Then they forget what they're mad about. Right. And if it is so bad that that you don't even think you can do anything there, then what you need to do is you need to wait till nighttime when it's dark. You need to seal them in that hive and remove the hive in whole from the property. Mm-hmm. Take it out to the country somewhere. Do whatever you need to. Rehabilitate it. Put a new queen in there. Wait the six weeks until they have calmed back down. And then maybe bring the hive back to your backyard. But... You know, you got to be conscientious of this stuff. And you also need to tell your neighbors, hey, we're getting ready to do something. Make sure that the kids stay inside. Make sure that the dogs stay inside. Don't come out in your backyard. Like, there's a give and a take. There's some people that they don't want their neighbors to know that there's bees there. And if that's the case, then, you know, you need to be very aware of what you're doing. But sometimes, like, when I had my first colonies in town here, like, bribery get you so far i had bees and i had chickens and all of my neighbors got eggs and honey and none of my neighbors ever complained about everything anything and we had we had this little text chain where that was literally the only time half the time that we ever communicated with each other via text was i would send a message and say hey i got honey and i got i got chickens we're, we're about to go out and do something to the bees or I accidentally made a colony mad because I, I knocked a box over or something, you know, so stay inside for a little bit because they are very riled up. And they would respond back and be like, OK, no problem. You know, good to know. Um, just let us know whenever it's clear. And and then I could send another text out. So those things can work, but you just have to be considerate of your environment and your surroundings. And 
I don't know what the truth of the matter was on that scenario. Sometimes you never can tell, but whatever it was, was, was very bad and it was very unfortunate for the dogs and it gives everybody else a bad name because somebody was irresponsible. Then did you see on the news last night, I think, swarm, they were talking about a swarm last night that attacked somebody and I for, I didn't watch this the, the I just saw where it uh, came across the the news and I'm sitting there okay somebody no uh, the swarm didn't kill nobody or didn't my so the swarm that's one of the nice confusions in beekeeping too is the term swarm when you look it up in the dictionary it is literally a bunch of things flying oh, yeah. in in unison or swimming in unison depending mm-hmm. on what you're talking about those are usually schools not swarms mm-hmm. but same thing uh, you look at that aspect, and so when people see, even if it's five or ten bees flying around the side of their house, swarm. they're swarming around the side of my yeah. house. Mm-hmm. No, they're flying around the side of your house. But in beekeeping, the term swarm is the reproductive split. But mm. in the media, rarely is it ever used oh, correctly. Yeah. So even anytime you hear swarm on the media, it's a bunch of bees, and it's usually used in a nefarious way. They came after this person, you know. Well, that person may have mowed over the top of their house. <laughs> so they're, you know, the nicest colony in the world. You hit it with a lawnmower, it's still going to try to get you. Now, on that note, I know you've already told me. I told you my bees, my, I have the Covarian queens. Uh, you have the Russian Carniolan. Russian Carniolans. Are they in the uh, top bars? Or are they in the, and, and then Langstroth had something and the top bars had something. I got two different kinds. I actually think you have in your I got a big headed queen. I mean, I got a big island queen. You know, you don't have any of the big island queens. No, I don't have any of the big island okay. No, so you've got in your Langstroths, you have Russian Carniolan hybrids. Okay. One of your top bars is a second gen Russian Carniolan hybrid. That's what it is. Yeah. Second but they're, they're all primarily the Russian Carniolan genetic line in there. Um, just It's just that one of the three is actually a second. Okay. Second generation. They're just so docile. Max, my son, he just, Dad, we don't. I says, well, John says we will find, a di- we will come out here and we will open this hive up and they will look at us and say, sting the hell out of <laughs> Well, in that, so that also plays back into some things that you'll experience in the summer dearth. Mm-hmm. They're just like people. They have their days, they have the temperaments and their attitudes, and you can have a very nice docile colony but in August, when there is no food, it's mm-hmm. hot as hell, they're cranky, there's nothing out there for them to eat. And they're anything. all female, guys. All female. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> there, there, go, there go the bad reviews. Um, they Anything that opens up the hive is seen as an intruder. So during the nectar flow, when there's copious amounts of food out there for them and it's just constantly coming in, mm-hmm. they, they have more important things to do than worry about you. But in the middle of that summer dearth when it's super hot you are a threat because there's no food out there and they'll be damned if you're going to take any food they have so they were they will be much more aggressive in july and august than they were in may and june but then in september october or october mainly they'll calm back down because now there's food available again and they'll they'll be a lot more forgiving of whatever it is you're trying to do it was one top bar max was standing in front of the the entrance and he was standing there and he wasn't paying no attention. I was watching the bees and the bees were just getting 
bunched up behind him because they didn't want to go between his legs. Oh, he was standing in. in front of it. And they were just getting he created thicker a traffic and jam. Thicker and, yeah. thicker and I'm sitting there, son, walk around to the other side yes. of the. <laughs> Always work your hives either from the side or from behind. Don't ever stand directly in front of it because you are creating a traffic jam. Mm -hmm. They are going to get irritated because something is blocking their pathway and it, it can cause them to actually rile up. But it is interesting if you ever do it and you're like, why are there a lot of bees flying around me? And then you turn around and look and there's like, Literally bumper to bumper traffic. Oh, They're yeah. like, hey. They are. And then as soon as <laughs> you move, like I 35. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you move, it's just this whoosh mass rush mm -hmm. right to the door and they all start going in. But you should always be on a top bar, be on the back side, don't be on the front side. Mm -hmm. And on a Langstroth, you can stand on either side or the back, but don't stand directly in front of where the entrance is. And then we've got, a, you know, I told on the top bars, Max is putting them in there. I says, John says, just wiggle them back and forth and the bees just start pushing down and then they go down. And Yeah, you then, start at the top. Yeah. Um, you so you you overlap one bar. I'm and I'm actually using my hands, and you guys can't see it. <laughs> so you overlap one bar to where the the bottom edge of the bar above it mm -hmm. is touching the top edge of the bar below it, mm -hmm. and you you just very gently go side to side, and it gives the bees time to kind of move out of the way. And then once you make contact with wood on wood, and you know all the bees are out of the way, then you can slip it down in there without squishing anybody. If you set it down and you try to push it together you'll smash somebody inevitably. Yeah. And they do make this little, there's some people that have gotten clever and they take this little uh, metal strip and they'll kind of run it down between the bars to help get the bees out of the way. But there's, that's an extra thing you got to carry, yep. an extra finesse. And yep. it, it's so much easier just to learn to do the bar properly and, and put it up there and get them out of the way. And on one of the top bars, I thought it was start crooked. Max says, no, dad, look at it, look at it. And he's right. It was getting fat. Yes. Now they'll do that on the outer edges sometimes, and that's yeah, not. Yeah, this is on the outer edges. That comb is not cross combing, uh -uh. but it will cause cross combing. It's getting fat. So what they do is on that outer side, if there's not anything to impede or stop B space, mm -hmm. and B space is that three eighths of an inch that they want between every mm -hmm. comb, right? So if you've got one fully drawn comb, and they start a little baby comb on the outer part, but that baby comb hasn't grown very far yet they may extend out the comb on either side. Well, so so the baby comb is in the middle of the bar. Right. The comb behind it, where it touches up against that baby comb, they'll leave the three-eighths of a space. But then as they come out past it, they'll extend that other comb behind it out further, make it fatter, wider, mm -hmm. because it'll hold more honey. And when they do that... Then if that other baby comb continues to grow, well, now it's got a curve mm -hmm. to go out around those fat parts of the comb behind it. So that can start cross-combing. Okay. That can get really tricky, and they'll always do that on those outer combs towards the end. And if, yeah. you, if you have it to where they've got one comb that they've done that on, then always take that comb and put it at the back. Okay. So you take your baby comb, you put it in between where they've already drawn and stopped drawing mm -hmm. it out, mm -hmm. and then move that fatter one to the outside and yeah, then just like keep moving about, it. It's like about a number eight or number nine. Yeah, you might, depending on what they do, you might want to go through there. Sometimes I always have that long serrated bread knife with me. Yeah. And there have one. been times where I'll actually shave down some fat parts of combs. And it doesn't matter if it's a Langstroth or top bar because you've got the one in the Langstroth mm -hmm. where before they started yeah, building, fat. yeah, they didn't mm -hmm. build on the, the frame behind them yet. So they had extra room. So they, they expanded out the comb on the frame in front of it. 
And a lot of times I'll just take the hive, well, not the hive tool, but the actual serrated bread knife, and I'll cut that flush going down the mm -hmm. edge of that bar, the edge of that frame, mm -hmm. so that then they'll fit together right. And the bees will clean it up, and they'll restore the honey where it needs to go. Just make sure to get the wax out of the bottom of the hive. Um, the other thing, too, with that bread knife, you're talking about comb getting attached to the side of the top bars. Mm -hmm. The bread knife, you should use it first. So you always open up a space towards the back where you don't have any comb. And then you start working your way towards the comb. And so that way you can always look in from the side right. through your opening mm -hmm. and you'll see if a comb is attached. And if it is, take your bread knife and cut the attachment right against the wood before you pick up the bar. Because the yeah. hotter it gets and the heavier oh, yeah. it gets, it doesn't take a lot to cause that comb to They are to rip. getting heavy, by yeah. the way. They're getting heavy. Uh, everything's looking good on them. I mean... Uh, I sent you a few pictures, I think. Yeah, we posted them on uh, on the Instagram and Facebook both at the Hive Jive yeah. so people could get out there and take a look at the, the combs. That was where one of the comments came from about they want to see you because I put on there that uh, you might get to harvest a comb. Mm -hmm. And they were like, we want to see. If Ken no, harvests, we want to see. We did actually have a listener thing. Let's do this real quick here. Uh, we had gotten an email from a gentleman named Kevin, and Kevin says that he truly loves the show. And he's actually spending this year researching so that he can hopefully become a new beekeeper next year, which is great. Yeah. Spend all the season planning, getting all your stuff in order, buy what you need to, be all prepared, and get your order in for the bees in the fall so that first thing in the spring, you know you're guaranteed to have them. Um, but he says, the show's amazing, and I really enjoy the depth of the knowledge and the interplay between you and Ken. His goal is to limit himself to just two to three colonies, and that's it. So his main question is... As the hives eventually expand and grow, and I reach my limit, how do I get rid of the extra bees that I don't have room for, um, who otherwise may swarm, right? Well, now, is that what—I'm going to throw something in here. He needs to have a Langstroth so he can go up. Well, it, regardless the style of hive that you have, mm -hmm. inevitably you're going to reach a, a max, right? Because mm -hmm. even if you have a Langstroth and you continue stacking boxes, mm -hmm. eventually they are still going to try to swarm. You can go through and you can checkerboard frames and you can do all this other stuff to help continue get them to build and to think they need more or have more space. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, even if it's in the second year or the third year and you've done everything you can, they're going to reach a point where they're finally just like, we're going to swarm. That is their natural instinct to divide. Yeah. That's how they reproduce. All biological mass mm -hmm. wants to reproduce and that's their reproductive split. So it's going to happen. Now, if you do a split of a colony, that colony more than likely is not going to make any honey for you because it has to rebuild all the resources mm -hmm. it lost, including the comb, when you did the split. Whereas if a colony swarms, depending on when they've done it, hopefully that colony is chocked full of food and chocked full of brood mm -hmm. that is going to emerge out. So you can get set back. It sounds terrifying because you're going to lose 50 to 75% of the, the worker force. Right. But there's also going to be that many more that are about to emerge and hatch out. Right. So the colony may not be set back as far as you think that they would, and it helps you know potentially spread the genetics. But if you're in a populated area and you don't want to be irresponsible, you don't want your swarms right. flying off and, and deciding that your neighbor's attic or wall mm -hmm. is a great place for a colony, um, one of the things that you can do is you can create a nuke. And that nuke, you keep it a nuke. And so you you might create it, set it off to the side, and you might allow the old queen to go in there, and you can allow them to raise the new queen if you want to do genetics that way. Mm -hmm. um, you can purposely go through, and you can try to kind of stifle that. But one of the things that you could do is you can create that nuke, and you can leave it as a resource colony, where if... 
something does happen in one of the other colonies and you need to supplement, you have this little thing that you can pull frames of brood from or you can pull excess bees from and give to those other colonies. And then at the end of the season, you can then combine it back in with those colonies. You just have to get rid of one of the queens, whichever queen mm -hmm. is, is mm -hmm. the oldest or not doing the best. You get rid of her, replace her with the other one. The other thing you could potentially do with the nuke is you can make that split and then you could sell it or you could give it to a friend who might want to increase their colony, their colony size and their bees. So there are ways that you can go through and kind of shuffle that around um, to help stifle the urge to want to swarm. But if you can keep them from swarming, ultimately, that's going to be a stronger colony and you're going to get more honey from it. So checkerboarding methods where you go through and, and you do like three frames of drawn, one frame empty, three frames drawn, one frame empty. They, they're going to want to go through and keep filling those empty frames. If you add an empty box on top, say you've already got two mediums mm -hmm. and you add an empty box up there, one of them's drawn out, one of them's empty. Mm -hmm. Alternate them. Every other frame in both boxes, one's drawn, one's empty, one's drawn, one's empty. Because then, yeah, they're going to want to go in and correct all those gaps and those errors in the B space. And so they'll, they'll want to draw that out. What about, got this nuke. Uh, got a nuke box, empty. Yeah, you're sitting there looking, okay, oh, they're building a queen cell over here. They're fixing the, they want to get ready to swarm, putting a younger queen in here. You take the older queen with some of the bees and put her in the nuke box. Correct. And the, you let them do And you've already put your older comb in there, and you have some, some comb so it smells right. And then they go to work. Uh, then the this bunch over here, they... They build their queen, and something happens, and she dies. Can you take that nuke box and put back into that? Yeah. So then you have a queen yeah. on that's, standby. That's why it's always good if you have just that one nuke, because it, it is a resource for anything. It's a resource mm -hmm. for food. It's a resource for brood. It's a resource for a queen. If, you, if something happens to your queen, you accidentally squished her, she died, she got some disease, whatever, you can then alternate that back in. You do. There's different methods that you can do to combine them. You'd probably do what's called a newspaper split or newspaper combine, not split, sorry, newspaper combine. And they will then go through and accept that new queen and, and you'll have her available. So it's always a good resource to have that. And it doesn't count. Like in, in Austin, we have our two hives per quarter acre limit, mm -hmm. but it's 2.5 is the way that the law is actually written. So they're letting you have a nuke. They'll let you have that nuke. And it's only considered a supplemental it's not considered a permanent hive. It's just meant to be there to supplement throughout parts of the season. So, so when I'm when, what I'm planning on doing is our place over in Mason. In time, I want to have fifteen or twenty hives. Right. And you're saying we need to be doing Langstroth over there because it's it's too further far away. away. Yeah, you don't get to check them as often. So I need to have one or two nukes over there. Along with them, just in case. Yeah, you could. And I could have, and if it's the bees that are coming from those hives, they're going to kind of smell the same. No, not after the queen has changed. Not after they the They will queen. no longer, no, because the, if you put a new queen in, mm -hmm. by the time six weeks has gone by, mm -hmm. all of the genetics in that colony are hers. So okay. now they all smell like her. Every colony has its own unique pheromone smells and their own unique odors to the mm -hmm. comb and to everything else so once you've once they've accepted a new queen they're keyed in on her scent and they it, even if they just came from a colony next to them you give them three weeks they've accepted that queen they're good they no longer recognize that other colony smell as theirs wow so okay. that that you can't just literally put them together right. but you can combine them in ways that it allows the pheromones time to mingle 
so that it's just like the introduction cage for the queen. Mm-hmm. It allows the pheromones to mingle, and then they can they can get in there. So. I got tickled when you, uh, the day you came out here, you the bees were all around your truck. They're always around my truck, no matter well, where I, know, I go. But you had queens <laughs> in there. I did. I had queens in the cab of the truck, and there were bees that were- They wanted they, in that they smelled, Yeah, they smelled the queens, and they were like, we want in here. Because there were so many queens in that container, there was a lot of queen pheromone. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, bees were just naturally attracted to the truck. And you and had the in. windows rolled up. Where, how in the hell did the smell get out? They're, they have really good – their antenna are, uh, antennae Whatever. are very, very strong. Right? Yeah. yeah, they can they can break things down to a molecular, molecular level. So. But, you know, that was, that's crazy. The more I learn about them, the more I'm fascinated and the more I want to know more about it. That's right, and that's what we're here for. That's yeah. the Hive Jive's all about. It's to help everybody learn and grow and expand. And, and you know, we, we become our own colony, and we go through and we learn from each other and we help each other. And uh, that's just kind of how it all plays out. That's kind of crazy. We got people sending you emails asking different things. And by the way, guys, if y'all ever, if you're in a hill country area and you need bees, (laughs) tell them how to find them. (laughs) Or you need somebody to come in and what the hell do you do? You take them out. Oh, yeah. Well, so the, my company, we do sell bees and we do removals, and so we we have uh, three branches of the company. There's the apiary itself, which is doing all of the education and hive mm-hmm. management and raising the bees and selling the bees. Then we've got the honey branch of the business, mm-hmm. and then we have the removal branch of the business, which mm-hmm. does the live removals and stuff. But that, I mean, that at the moment is so absolutely out of control. Uh, we are booked up. We're, what are we? The it's the first week of July, right. and our next available appointment is in August. Wow! I mean, it is it is nonstop. I am referring out five to seven calls a day to Good other gosh. businesses and other individuals because we've got so much coming in. It just it's nonstop. I don't wow. get to sleep. <laughs> wow! Which is why I wake up tired. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you know. That shows you do a good job. That's yeah. what it's about. And uh, the Hive Jive, we enjoy visiting with everybody. Absolutely. And, and we're always, we love getting in the feedback and the questions. It doesn't matter if it's a comment on one of the social media on nope. Facebook or Instagram at the Hive Jive, or if you've sent us an email directly, you can do that to info at thehivejive.com. We've got some people that, um, so the way that our social media works, um, Ken, Ken will never be on there. <laughs> Ken, no. Ken doesn't even follow our accounts, first off. Well, um, I have a funny... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when it comes to technology yeah. and things like that, you know, you 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 kind of, uh, you've had other reasons why you're a little hidden in there. Yeah. But um, for myself, I have access to all of these social media accounts. We also have a couple of individuals that go through and help us because I usually am off with my head in a hive and you're not necessarily looking at it. Mm-mm. So in order for people to get a response in a timely manner... We have a couple of uh, volunteers that go through there. They look at it. They'll respond to things. Um, anytime anything important or, like, needs a response right away comes in, they'll forward it to one of us. And then, you know, if I need to, I'll kick it over to you. And that way you can get a response. But usually um, if I am on there, I-, I will identify myself when I'm chatting with people. I'll say, hey, this is John. But um, we have a – like, there's a lady on here right now that she goes through and she'll actually send us messages and ask questions, and she's actually in the actual chat thread as opposed mm-hmm. to commenting on the stuff. Wow. And her and I have went back and forth several times on things, and one of the things that you had mentioned, she sent me a, a question at one point about seeing queen cups, and mm-hmm. the queen cup is just the acorn top to the right. hive. 
But then if they start drawing that out and they add in the egg and they, it turns into a larva and they start extending it, that is then a queen cell. And there's a big difference between those two. Well, she had colonies. She just got this year. They're in top bars. They made 12 or 14 comb like really quickly. Um, and she was worried about would they potentially swarm? Well, at that time, a couple of weeks earlier and with the nectar flow slowing down, I didn't think so. But they actually did. They turned around and she sent me pictures where they had turned those swarm cells, the cups, into actual cells. Wow. And she was like, now what does this mean? And I was like, well, now they're absolutely going to swarm. And so I went through and helped her try to hopefully navigate some of that. We'll see how that played out if she managed to get the split. Um, it was one of those situations where you got to find your queen. You have to know, <laughs> have they swarmed yet or not? Um, and so we we kind of helped trying to coach and guide through that. So um, it is a resource when I, when I do have the opportunity and have the time. Usually it's late at night or early in the morning before I do get stuck in something. But we'll go through and, and try to help you guys out. And that's what we're here for. That's the it. Hive jive. The hive jive. Thanks, guys. Thank y'all. Y'all be good. <laughs> be good. Thank you. Bye. It's time for our guys to buzz off. But don't fret. The hive jive journey continues with new episodes on the first and third Mondays every month. Until then, you can follow along with the guys on Facebook and Instagram at The Hive Jive. Thanks for listening and be safe out there.